The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you again for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushdooney. My prayer is that you will be strengthened by these readings. The insight in which Mr. Rushdooney had is significant, not only then, but in today's day as well. But in no way should it replace your own studies in the Scriptures. And I do pray that you will take what you learn and apply it to every area of your life and thought. Guilt, Atonement, and Freedom Chalcedon Position Paper Number 43 Shakespeare's Hamlet, in his famous soliloquy, says at one point, quote, Conscience does make cowards of us all, unquote. In this sentence, Shakespeare summed up an ancient awareness of the corrosive effects of a bad conscience. Guilty men pay a price. They lose the power to be free. Being enslaved to sin, they become outwardly slaves as well. As our Lord says, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant or slave of sin. However, If the Son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. John 8, 34 and 36. When the Russian Revolution began, only a very small minority of the people favored the Bolsheviks. The Bolsheviks, however, led by Lenin, preached envy and hatred on every possible occasion. When their takeover began, many millions were ready to exploit the situation to loot shops and homes. Having done this, they were guilty partners to the revolution and thus had little moral grounds to fight the Bolshevik power. Many years later, an older man said sadly, We brought judgment upon ourselves. With World War II, Stalin, fearing more than anything else his own subjects, encouraged the most vicious behavior by his advancing troops. Everything was done to incite them to rape, murder, and looting. 
the Germans were provoked to brutality in every possible way. As Nikolai Tolstoy says in Stalin's Secret War, 1982, quote, Stalin went out of his way to invite Nazi ill-treatment and later extermination of Russian prisoners of war, unquote. page 261. He knew that the reaction of this would be greater brutality by the Soviet troops. By so doing, Stalin demoralized his own men. How could they, after the war, fight against the horrors of Stalin and communism when they themselves had been guilty of like brutalities? How could they stand against Stalin's evil when they themselves had been so readily and brutally evil? A bad conscience had disarmed them. Guilt has always been a useful and basic tool of tyranny and false power. Over the years, I have encountered situations where a husband or wife try secretly and covertly to push their spouse into adultery. The purpose is to give them a bad conscience which will enable the manipulator to dominate the erring partner. In one case, a wife, failing to push her husband into adultery, became violent and mentally unstable because she had been unable to use guilt to control him. This power is well known to evil politicians. A guilty people are more readily controlled people. Hence, such politicians are prone to creating guilt. We have heard much in the past generation about hunger in America even to, quote, statistics, unquote, on the number of the hungry. That this is a myth has been shown more than once to no avail. We are given horror stories about how exploitive we are in order to make us more readily exploitable. The purpose of a vast amount of political oratory is to create guilt in the people at large and all who oppose them. Too many, quote, liberals, unquote, are people who feel guilty for things they never did while feeling no guilt for unhappy things done. It is very difficult for a Christian to speak before certain types of audiences without being indicted for things totally unrelated to his subject. To cite one example, one questioner or indicter declared that no Christian had a right to speak given the treatment of the Indians. The fact is that very often, the only friends the Indians had were Christians. Most of the men on the frontier were lawless men, runaways from the law and from a disciplined society. They were godless men. Does it make sense to blame contemporary atheists for the sins of past atheists? More than a few of the traitors and agents who exploited the Indians were Masons. This gives us no moral right to condemn current Masons for anything other than their own sins. When men are found guilty and convicted, they may or may not face a physical prison, but they most certainly face an inner prison. Their conscience convicts them, first of all, and their conscience imprisons them in the barless but far stronger prison of guilt. Those who work to lay a, quote, guilt trip, unquote, on us are simply trying to imprison us and to take away our freedom in order to have the freedom to work their own evil will. At the very least, they seek to put godly men on the defensive, trying to vindicate their innocence rather than do their work. The answer thus to the question about the mistreatment of the Indians is a countercharge. If you believe this country was stolen from the Indians, as a few million of you do, 
sell all you have, give your money and land to the Indians, and migrate back to Europe. Until you do that, believing what you do, are you not a hypocrite? Guilt is the enemy of freedom. It disturbs rest and sleep, and it hinders our work and functioning. Most important, it is a precondition for the enslavement of a people. As I pointed out in The Politics of Guilt and Pity, 1970, enslavement by guilt is an essential aspect of modern politics. If we are rich, we should feel guilty. If we are middle class again, we are guilty. If we are lower class, we are somehow subhuman and responsible for it. If we are Christians, we should feel guilty. If we have had a good education, shame on us. If we enjoy our work, or our play, our family, or our friends, we are somehow guilty of neglecting, quote, the big picture, unquote, and are vile creatures. Politics has become the art of creating and manipulating guilt in order to increase the powers of the state. The Bible, too, tells us that we are guilty men, that, quote, there is none righteous, no, not one, unquote, Romans 3.10. Quote, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, unquote. Romans 3.23 For Scripture, however, the recognition and confession of sin and guilt is the first step towards absolution. We are told emphatically that sin and death are casually related. Death is the consequence of sin and guilt. The whole point of Scripture is that redemption and freedom from sin, guilt, and death or to be had through Christ's atonement. Not only does Christ become our sin-bearer and vicarious atonement, but He remakes us so that we are a new creation. To be free from sin, guilt, and death is to be a new man with a renewed nature. The purpose of salvation is to make us a free people. Quote, You shall know the truth, Jesus Christ, and the truth shall make you free. Unquote. John 8.32 Only a free people can create a free world. Thus, the release from sin and guilt before God is the necessary prelude to human freedom. This is why atonement is so essential to political freedom. In the ancient world, men were aware of the dangers of guilt. Hence, they sought to be free by requiring atonement for all citizens. In Rome, all citizens, except soldiers on duty, had to be present for the annual lustrations, to be washed of their sins. Freedom from guilt was essential to the status of a free man. All such efforts were futile, of course, because the Roman lustrations provided no atonement. It should be noted, however, that Rome did see in its early years the relationship between a clear conscience before the gods and freedom. Now, the recognition is of the power of a bad conscience and guilt in enslaving people. A few years ago, one man told me that he no longer subscribed to a daily paper because the input from the, quote, news, unquote, was, quote, if I don't save the world before lunch, I'm a dirty, rotten bastard, unquote. More than a few businessmen have withdrawn from social responsibility in a sick disgust. Both politicians and their modernist pastors do little more than to, quote, lay a guilt trip, unquote, on all businessmen. And they are weary of it. 
but they are impotent in the face of it without faith. No man escapes from slavery merely by resenting it. We have spoken of the role of politicians in fostering guilt. It is very necessary to speak also of the role of the clergy. I can never forget the friend who told me of her father, a lifelong member of a fundamentalist church. Every pastor he had ever had was an expert at congregational control through guilt. Every Sunday, that poor man went home feeling wretched because he had, quote, failed, unquote, God. He was a miserable sinner, and so on. Instead of empowering the congregation to go forth in the power of the Lord to serve Christ's kingdom in every area of life and thought, the pastor made one and all feel how sinful they were and how they had to do more for and give more to their church to be, quote, right, unquote, with the Lord. This is preaching for enslavement, and it is very popular with both fundamentalist and modernist churches. It goes hand in hand with over-government. The guilt-laying church, no less than the guilt-laying state, wants to control people. A church that is very, quote, strict, unquote, in church government is not necessarily any more godly than one which is very lax. Many a, quote, strict, unquote, church prides itself on its godly severity when what it is really saying is that it does not believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. Not without reason. Milton wrote, quote, New Presbyter is but old priest writ large, unquote. Over-government allows no room for freedom nor for growth. It allows for one voice in the church and none other. It furthers centralization of power in both church and state. In brief, over-government distrusts the power of God in the life of man. Some of the religious over-governors seem to believe that while they were created in the image of God, the residue of men were only created in a partial image and hence need the dictatorship of the elite element. These non-elite ones are to be kept in line with a bad conscience. Revelation 6.16 tells us of the guilty as they face God's judgment, that they cry out to the mountains and rocks, quote, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, unquote. Earlier, we cited the use by Stalin of guilt as a means of enslaving and governing his subject peoples. It must be added that Stalin himself was governed by guilt. He demanded the most fulsome adulation and praise to conceal the truth of his nature. He wanted pictures of himself to mirror his ideal image and had several portrait painters shot for falling short of his demands. Quote, the desire to humiliate and terrify extended even to his own family, unquote. In Tolstoy, page 23, and with it an intense fear of all men, including his own carefully selected guards. He had an obsessive belief in the omnipresence of his enemies and went to extreme lengths to protect himself. The one constant factor in Stalin's policy, according to Tolstoy, page 50, was fear, a total fear that warped all his being. He had made slaves of all the people, but he himself was the continually haunted slave 
of his bad conscience and his fear of the people. Since Stalin's day, there has been no essential change in the rulers of the Soviet system. Slave labor is still the lifeblood of the economy, and total surveillance and total fear prevail. The same extreme precautions are taken to protect the present leaders from the people. There is no real or substantial difference between Stalin and Andropov. Both represent the enthronement of evil and of evil power. The cowardice of Stalin stemmed from a bad conscience. The same bad conscience governs in the Kremlin today. Although not to the same degree, the same bad conscience governs most Western heads of states. They wage war, usually covertly, against God and man in terms of a humanistic ideal. They see other men as no more than manure to fertilize the ground of a planned future. They sacrifice men in wars they do not plan to win, and they treat people as instruments to be manipulated. Like a volcanic ash, which covers the entire earth, colors the sun, and becomes a part of the air men breathe, so too a bad conscience is a part of the spiritual air of the 20th century. It colors the life and thought of most men. It makes cowards and slaves of them. The world's great and overwhelming need is for freedom, but men reject freedom when they reject Christ. Quote, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Unquote. John 8.32 That truth is Jesus Christ, who declares, quote, If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Unquote. John 8.36 This is a political and psychological fact and premise, and even more, it is the religious premise for all things. October 1983 No God, No Law Chalcedon Position Paper Number 44 The German coal shirts came to the United States after the failure of the Revolution of 1848. He found the nature of the United States to be dramatically different from Europe. Quote, here in America, you can see how slightly a people needs to be governed. In fact, the thing that is not named in Europe without a shudder, anarchy, exists here in full bloom, unquote. David Tayak and Elizabeth Hansot, Managers of Virtue, page 19. What Schertz meant was that civil government was at a minimum, especially on the state and federal levels. There was almost no government other than the self-government of the Christian man. Now, in 1983, the powers of the state are vastly increased. Only in the most nominal sense does the United States have the same kind of civil government it had then. From an almost non-existent civil government, the United States has moved to a highly centralized, omnipresent power state. From a free republic and a loose federation of states, it has become an increasingly fascist order. Fascism is that form of socialism which maintains the facade of a private ownership and the free market while controlling all things with regulations so as to socialize all things. At the same time, quote, laws, unquote, have also increased at a phenomenal rate, man-made laws replacing the rule of God's law. The increase of laws has not led to any increased order. The increase of lawlessness and crime has been phenomenal. 
At the same time, the modern state has become humanistic and hence determined to play God. This has meant that its goal has become more and more power and total control. Because the state sees itself as absolute, it recognizes no superior law and no superior being as having any binding power over it. Lin Pio, the Chinese revolutionary leader, expressed the faith of the modern state very bluntly. Quote, Political power is an instrument by which one class oppresses another. It is exactly the same with revolution and with counter-revolution. As I see it, political power is the power to oppress others. Unquote. Paul Johnson, Modern Times, page 556. When we read the writings of Marxist and fascist leaders, it becomes apparent that George Orwell's vision in 1984 was not inaccurate when he described the goal of the humanistic state as power, and the purpose of that power as, quote, a boot stamping on a human race forever, unquote. In such a society, there can be no law. Law assumes a higher order, a justice above and over man, and the state which both must serve. Walter Kaufman, in Without Guilt and Justice, 1973, was logical. By denying the God of Scripture, he denied also guilt or innocence, and justice or injustice, as invalid. They were simply implications and aspects of faith in God and His higher order. Humanistic man must be beyond good and evil. This means also that humanistic man is beyond law. There can be no higher law governing or binding man. As Paul Johnson noted, there is no Marxist philosophy of law. Evgeny Pashukhanis, a Soviet legal theoretician, pursued the issue logically and declared that in a true socialist society, quote, law would be replaced by plan, unquote. Paul Johnson, Modern Times, page 679. During the 1930s, the plan led to, among other things, the death of Pashukhanis. He was, however, right. Soviet society is governed not by law, but by plans. The same is increasingly true in the rest of the world. Most, quote, laws, unquote, today are bureaucratic regulations created by some federal, state, county, or city agency or planning commission. The number of laws enacted by representative legislative bodies is small by comparison. Power is moving from the legislative bodies to the planning agencies which they created. This leads to a curious fact. The number of lawyers is proliferating, but the traditional practice of law is giving way to bureaucratic law. Law is ceasing to be law in any historic sense. Recently, the American Bar Association expressed dismay at the bad image lawyers have with the public. That bad image is not unique to lawyers. Politicians are commonly despised. Bankers are distrusted. So too are doctors, the clergy are in disrepute, and so on. Virtually every calling is held in contempt or viewed at least with suspicion. Since all have become infected with relativism, all are viewed with distrust. In law, irrelevant technicalities of form overrule the substantive claims of justice, a condition not limited to law, although especially deadly where justice is the issue. 
The plan is replacing law, and the plan is a humanistic concept. It represents man's ad hoc concept of order, and the plan allows no disagreement because no higher law exists, it is believed, to judge the plan. As one of Stalin's economists, S.G. Shumlin, said, quote, Our task is not to study economics, but to change it. We are bound by no laws, unquote. Johnson, page 267. The word law in its origin and its still current meaning is that which is laid, set, or fixed. It has reference to an established standard, but it is no longer true of law that it gives us a fixed standard. It is at its best a rubber yardstick. Early in the 1970s, a lawyer remarked with disgust that too often he did not know what the law was until he went to court and heard the judge give the law a new meaning. Men no longer seek to conform themselves and their societies to God's higher law. Rather, they conform the law to society's demands. Such an attitude is not new. It has been the goal of tyranny for many centuries. Let us remember that the root meaning of tyranny is rule by man's law. W.P.M. Kennedy noted of Queen Elizabeth I, quote, The Elizabethan ideal in religion was national unity, unquote. Studies in Tudor History, page 233. Tudor despotism brought even family devotions in private under the spying supervision of Tudor agents. Homes were regularly searched for the slightest evidences of Catholic piety. Later, the same interest was shown in discovering Puritan piety. Both Catholics and Puritans refused to recognize the monarch's headship over the church. In Kennedy's words, quote, It was a dangerous experiment to scorn her governorship of the church. She was in a very real sense what Lord North described her, our God on earth. And a Puritan appeal to scripture was, in her eyes, political heresy, as it dishonored the national church of which she was supreme governor. The insult was an insult to the throne, and the throne was a Tudor throne, unquote. Page 242F. One can add that law was also, to a large degree, Tudor law. The problem was not new. It was an attitude common to pagan antiquity. Darius of Persia at least qualified his power, declaring, quote, By the grace of Aramazda, I am king, unquote. But the Roman emperors made no such qualification as imperial theology developed. Rome's central cult, quote, was the worship of Rome itself, unquote. Michael Grant, The Climax of Rome, page 164. The persistent tendency of political theology over the centuries has been to make the state absolute, God walking on earth, and the source of law. This objective has never had more eager and more philosophical justification than in the modern era. Especially since the French Revolution, it has become basic to the modern age. It is worthy of note that two basic concepts of this era are totally lacking in the U.S. Constitution. Neither the words sovereignty nor nation appear in that document. Sovereignty was held to be an attribute of God alone and the nation-state was not seen as the standard. Rather, the prevailing concept of the American framers was of a freedom and justice state. Today, the U.S. Constitution has a radically different meaning 
and it has been reinterpreted and rewritten in effect to include federal sovereignty and nationhood. At the same time, life has been politicized. To live under the rule of law is one thing, but to live under the rule of politics and planning emphatically something else. John Lukacs has summed it up very clearly. Quote, the administrator rather than the producer has become the typical and respected American occupation. Unquote. John Lukacs, A New History of the Cold War, page 295. The triumph of the administrator is a triumph in every sphere, in politics, industry, the church, education, and elsewhere. It is the triumph of planning over law, because the administrator's goal is not a given order, but the control of all factors in terms of his plan. So far has this emphasis on man-made planning gone that noble laureate Sir Francis Crick has said that man's planning should establish what is human. Quote, no newborn infant should be declared human until it has passed certain tests regarding its genetic endowment, and if it fails these tests, it forfeits the right to live. Unquote. T. Howard and J. Rifkin, Who Should Play God? Page 81. Crick is not alone in this opinion. It is shared by others. One aspect of it is abortion. The champions of abortion refuse to recognize any law of God over them. For them, the essential question is whether or not the unborn baby fits into their plan. We have state planning because we have personal planning, which is in defiance of God's law. Where men can choose their forms of sexual expression in defiance of God's law, takes the lives of unborn babies at will, and assume the prerogative of directing their lives without God, there will be no hesitation to apply the same principles of humanistic planning in the realm of the state. Law gives way to planning. The tragic fact in this process is that lawyers who should be champions of the law have become extensively advocates of planning. Charles Moray's traced this change back to the era before the French Revolution. The old regime badly needed accountants, quote, while what she had was lawyers, unquote. Not lawyers with any real sense of law, but lawyers whose heads were full of plans. They talked, therefore, of the rights of man and proceeded to execute men to achieve their planned society. Trolls Moray's The Triumph of the Middle Class, page 113FF. The plans could be described as, quote, good intentions, unquote, but the good intentions of fallen, sinful man have a crippling and evil effect on social order. The great superstition of the modern age is a political superstition. It is the belief that more power in the hands of the state can lead to a better plan and to man's triumph under the plan. In terms of this superstition, man will eliminate poverty, prejudice, war, and a host of other evils by means of the plan, hence more power to the state. The plan supplants law, God's law. The plan denies justice or righteousness. It recognizes only the supremacy of the power state and the philosopher kings, or, quote, scientific, unquote, planners thereof. Because justice, God's justice, stands always above and over man, and man's plan 
The plan works to exclude God's law or justice, and it therefore wages war against biblical faith. If there is no God, there is no law, only man's plan. The plan, in fact, must work to disassociate itself from justice because it seeks to separate itself from God. Kaufman derided the concept of justice as a biblical hangover. Albert Camus said, quote, Since God claims all that is good in man, it is necessary to deride what is good and choose what is evil. Unquote. The Rebel, page 47. The modern humanistic state has done exactly that. Its course is self-consciously humanistic. The U.S. Supreme Court legalized abortion and in the process avoided any consideration of a biblical position. All kinds of premises were examined, but not that of God's law. No transcendent law order was given any attention. Law was replaced by the humanistic plan. Elections, however important, cannot change the mind and heart of man. Law is in essence a religious question. When even churches are indifferent to God's law, the state will be also. But to be indifferent to God's law is to deny that God is God and that His law word alone is sovereign like Himself. But if there is no God, then there is no law and no justice. November 1983 Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushman. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the love he had shown us by his paying the very price. It was there at Calvary's tree, where he died for you and me. Jesus is to us as the husband.
Tell the 